Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome to Thread, episode 133. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Welcome to Thread. It's a leader's Bible study. Thread is a verse-by-verse study of the teachings of Jesus and the life of the New Testament church. We're looking for lessons that apply especially to our lives as leaders and people who want to be influential in the lives of others, and I think you're going to love today's topic. You know, mainly in life, we deal with challenges to our emotions. We battle to keep a good attitude and to handle conflict in a positive way. We try to get enough sleep and live a healthy lifestyle, generally just try to stay upbeat so we can bring our best self to the world. Despite the multitude of challenges that we're all facing. And then there are the mind games that the devil uses to attack us. And all of us must fight. And I mean fight to maintain the kind of thought life that will strengthen us to be successful as we move forward in life despite the many challenges that we're all going to have to deal with. Now, we can live at the emotional level because most of us come from societies that have developed to the point that they allow all of our needs to be met at the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In case you have forgotten your freshman psychology course, there are five levels of need that we each have, and these are generally presented as a pyramid. At the bottom of this pyramid are physical needs. This is food, shelter, and clothing. Uh, Staying alive, the things I have to do so that my body can continue to live. Once I get those settled, I move to the second level, and that is the need for safety. I have to be able to defend and protect myself. Safety from animals, from the elements, from uh, other people. Uh, safety needs. Once I get those needs met, I move up to the third level, and now I live at the the level where I need to find love. I need to find belonging. I have to have a group that is my group, and uh, you know, humans are communal creatures, and so we need that. It's a need that has to be met, and that's the third level. Once I get that level met, now I move up higher, and that is a need for esteem because I want that group to look up to me, so I start to focus on my self-esteem needs. And when I've met those needs, now I move to the highest level of all, self-actualization, being the best I can be. Now, in the West, we pretty much live at that most difficult level of all, self-actualization. And uh, this is, of course, impossible, because there's always a little bit more that we could be Uh, or some way we could still improve. So most of us who live at the fifth level remain frustrated at our lack of perfection because this is more or less a godlike realm to live in. But every now and then, you will find yourself in a situation of physical peril. And by this, I mean you are facing danger to your body, the loss of your liberty, your freedom, Your needs quickly move from self-esteem all the way down to level one, animal survival mode. And this is a horrifying experience, but it is also liberating because these are clarifying moments. I mean, when there's a flood and you're being swept away by the water trying to claw your 
your body onto a floating log just so you don't drown, you will suddenly realize that your credit card debt or being 15 pounds too heavy or having a little acne isn't really that big of a problem. Now, in my short life, I have been through violent riots, break-ins to the home we were in, coup d'etat, overthrowing government. More than once, I've been through that one. Uh, Earthquakes, multiple car wrecks, near drownings. I have been present, unfortunately, at a kidnapping. I have also found myself helplessly trapped inside a public transportation vehicle being driven by an intoxicated driver with speeds over 100 miles an hour in the pouring rain. And in addition to all this, in our lives as missionaries, we often have to face, I'm talking about my family, the threat of being made to leave the place that we live in and the work that we have poured our, our life into for so many years. So today's thread is a case study in how to deal successfully in a time of physical peril, and I hope that you will find it as refreshing as I have. Let's go to the scripture. We're in Acts chapter 27. This is the great dramatic shipwreck story of the Apostle Paul. Verse 1 opens with these words, it was decided. This verse highlights um, Paul's loss of control over his physical well-being. I think we often take this for granted because we generally have the liberty to protect ourselves physically. For example, if you're in a crowd and two people start a fight, you have the power to simply move away from that area. If it's raining, you can step inside and get away from it. But one of the most horrifying experiences you can ever go through in life is to have your personal liberty taken away from you by placing you under the power of the system. Uh, I've had friends living a perfectly normal life when there was a knock at the door and the police took them into custody. And suddenly they had no power to defend their own life because they were under the power of the government. This story with Paul opens with the words, it was decided, followed by, So they delivered Paul to a centurion named Julius. So the beginning of this this drama is that Paul loses power over his own physical safety. He is now out of control, and he has to look to another person to protect him. Uh, If you have forgotten the backstory, Paul has been under house arrest in what could have been seen as a minor disagreement. He should have been released immediately, but then the bureaucracy got involved, and the next thing you know, there's a file with his name on it, and people in authority are moving him through the system, automatically treating him like a criminal, misunderstanding even his identity, confusing him with notorious people that they've been looking for. And then they turn his case over to a new judge, and this man is very political, And he is out to gain favor from the power group that is uh, persecuting Paul. So Paul realizes pretty quickly that this new judge is not going to be fair. And so Paul appeals to the highest court that the Roman emperor himself will now personally handle Paul's case. So he is placed in the custody of a centurion named Julius and loaded onto 
a grain ship that's coming out of Egypt. These ships were the lifeblood of the Roman Empire because they fed the people across thousands of miles with grain that was produced in Egypt and then shipped uh, to Italy and the rest of the empire. At this point, we have multiple characters in this story, and each one of them has their own agenda. You've got the owner of the ship. He's just about making money. Then there's the captain of the ship, who's about being successful and building his career and staying in control of his crew and making a profit at the end of this adventure. Then we have all the sailors, underpaid. And then the soldiers, underpaid also. Then there's a centurion, Julius. And then there's Paul and his friends, because his friends are traveling with him, including Luke, who is writing this account. And there are many other civilian passengers on this commercial vessel, because this is not a military ship. It is a commerce ship, and it has almost 300 people on on it. Paul is just a number to the people in charge of this system. He's just a number to them. This ship has got lots of things going on. It's got cargo. It's got hundreds of people. He's not like the special one on board. In fact, they probably look down on him because he's a prisoner. But Paul knows who he is in Christ. And Paul knows that he is on a mission. He knows that his life is going to be used up for God's purposes and that the kingdom of God will continue to spread because of his efforts. And so all passengers aboard, they loose the ropes and set out to sea. Well, the problems begin with the season of the year that they find themselves in. The month was October, and October was a dangerous last tiny window for sailing before the complete end of transportation from November until spring. The Mediterranean was just unnavigable due to storms and high seas. The swells were huge and the winds were strong and unpredictable, and people just did not sail from November onward. So October, extremely dicey, uh, but some people can get through it without a wreck. So this whole journey just feels wrong. The ship is struggling day by day. It's fighting against the weather and the currents. And everything in nature seems contrary to this ship reaching Italy, and it will remain that way. Actually, things will get worse day to day as they approach Italy and as they approach the end of the month. And Paul must have been asking himself why they were pushing so recklessly ahead. I mean, at one point, they really come under strong winds, they're battling to control the ship, And they stop. They stop their journey in a very safe place. There's nothing wrong with that place. But it wasn't a large city. And all the players in this drama were pushing to get to a nicer town because they were going to have to spend the next three or four months there before springtime. And so Paul stands before this group, and he says to them in verse 10, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss. Not only of the cargo, that's where all their money's at, not only the ship, but also our own lives. I think it's interesting the word Paul uses for disaster here. It's the Greek word hubris, which has got a really rich tradition in Greek literature. You know, all the great stories of Greek mythology point out 
um, they point out how that a man's hubris, a person's hubris, is always the reason behind their undoing. Hubris means overweening pride, you know, being self-confident and cocky as though we were gods and not mortals. Hubris is a loss of perspective. A person who loses their humility and who becomes puffed up with pride will overestimate their abilities and they will wrongly calculate their chances of success and make them always, you know, a lot higher than they really are. Hubris is behind every failed business venture, every misguided military exploit that ends in disaster, even in ministry. So much failure from hubris. Across the world, there are huge, empty church buildings, sometimes only halfway built, as a testimony to the hubris of the leaders who lost touch with reality and thought that, you know, they could never fail. They were always going to hit a home run whenever they came to bat. Nothing bad could happen if it's me that's in charge. Now, in Paul's case, as happens most of the time, the voice of wisdom is drowned out by the voices of the experts and the majority. And so in this case, the majority votes, and they vote to continue their voyage in a decision to try to avoid inconvenience, and perhaps in search for comfort of the larger harbor and the opportunity to satisfy their lusts and other personal desires in such a setting that's actually made for sailors. Verse 13 says, After this decision, the wind blew softly, and the group took it as a positive sign. But, you know, this is how most tragic stories begin. In the Philippines, they have an expression, akaliko. It means, but I thought. They say uh, more people die from a calico than any other cause. You know, I thought the electricity was turned off. I thought it was water, not gasoline. I thought I had the green light. Uh, I thought you were watching. So anyway, the ship bearing almost 300 passengers raises the grand sail to the wind and commits itself to the sea. And they try to remain close to the shore because they know what time of year this is. At least, you know, we'll sail within sight. But very soon, a huge northeasterly wind descends upon them and drives them out into the sea in a storm that lasts 14 days without abating. Man, I cannot imagine the misery of such an ordeal. I mean, to me, being seasick is the worst feeling you can have. So, uh, you know, usually if you're seasick, you can get off, let's say if it's a ride, you can get off the ride or you can get off the ship, you know, in at least a few hours, the thing will be over with and you can get off. But imagine being, um, for example, imagine being trapped on an amusement park ride that makes you sick and they won't let you off. Some maniacal guy with a devil mask is at the controls and he won't stop the thing. You know, it's been a minute and you're throwing up everywhere and, and you're saying, stop, stop. And he lets it continue to spin you around and you plead and you cry and you vomit until there's just nothing left to throw up. And still the spinning continues until you're finally half conscious in a puddle on the floor. Now imagine that that goes on for 14 days. Ah, it's a horrible ordeal. They're seasick, but also there's the peril. Um, the great contest that, that emerges at this point between death 
and life. And they're, they're, on the one side, you've got the collective skills of every sailor on board. And on the other hand, you have the sea and death. And the sailors use every tactic possible to keep the ship from sinking. Um, if you've never spent much time out to sea, it's impossible to comprehend the force of waves. I've been in a few situations in my life where I've been on a light vessel that was slamming onto a reef and just the power of the waves. And you can turn and see the fear in the eyes of the sailors and you just know how serious your situation is. Well, in this case, the sailors pass cables around the hull to hold the boat together. They even throw out the equipment and the furniture to lighten the ship so it'll ride higher in the waves. And verse 22 says that finally, after 14 days and no one eating any food, all hope was given up that they might be saved. This is such a huge moment. You know, you battle against death with all your might. You spend all your money buying medical treatment or paying ransom. You seek every expert. You use everything at your disposal to try to win this battle. But at some point, you realize that there's really nothing more that you can do and that you simply have to resign yourself, that all is truly lost, and just prepare yourself to die as well as you can. And that is the feeling that has come over the entire ship. And with that feeling, Paul sleeps. And he is visited in the night by an angel who has been sent by God to give him a clear word of promise. Oh, man, the value of a clear word of promise from God. Now, notice that nothing in his circumstances will now change. The storm continues at the exact same level. The ship is still, uh, you know, going down in the waves and being flooded, and they're bailing it out, and the wind is blowing against him. Nothing changed. But now, Paul has a word from God, and Paul has learned how to exercise his faith. And Paul realizes from his past experience how powerful faith really is. You know, faith is not wishful thinking. It's not trying to have a generally positive attitude. It is simply another word for trust. And in order to have trust, you have to have something to tie it to. Actually, in Greek, the word faith or trust, it can't exist by itself in a sentence. It's properly translated faith in or trust in, and you, you have to you know, supply the next word. Because faith is only successful if the thing you base it on is true. Paul didn't have some general Bible verse. He had a direct, clear promise from God. And Paul knew that if he would focus all his trust upon believing that one word of promise, it would be enough to save his life and the lives of everyone around him. Now, you know, in the absence of such a word, we have to live by common sense and a hopeful attitude that in general, God makes everything work out in the end. But I think we do ourselves a disservice to proclaim a naive belief that no unpleasant things can happen to us because we're the children of God. You know, there's a big difference between a clear word from God and a wish on my part. But, you know, like many of you, I have charted the major turning points of my life according to a clear word from God that came to me. I was single 
I was praying about a wife, and I was actually praying for my best friend, who was Sherry, and I was praying for her to get a husband. That's how the whole thing started, was I was praying for her and that she would get a right man, and then I was praying for myself that I would get a right wife, and then God spoke to me. And he said something I had never considered for a moment. He said two words, Mary, Sherry. I had never even conceived of that thought. She was the best friend I'd ever had in my life. She was like a a little sister to me. But suddenly those words, Mary, Sherry, entered my mind, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And one thing led to another, and you know, before you know it, I'm in the car driving down to see my family and saying, hey, I know what I'm going to do now. I'm going to marry Sherry. And we, I acted on it. And my life's been so blessed because of that. I was in the Philippines, and I was there to become the president of a university after one year. I was there to be the dean for one year and become the president the next year. And there were it was a gray year of the move of God, 1990. A new church was being planted every eight hours nationwide, and we had gotten involved in a volleyball game in our neighborhood, and that was allowing us to build relationships, and we had never seen such spiritually hungry people. And so we had started uh, attending and being part of a Bible study, and I was in the shower one night, and the Lord spoke, and He said just, you know, seven words, build my church and build it now. And I realized I had to plant a church in our neighborhood. And so within two weeks, a church was planted in a home, and we moved from house to house. And eventually it, it came to number you know, thousands of people overall, and that church plus the daughter churches that it had. So it became the biggest thing in our life for 15 years. But it was a word from God. Uh, during the kidnap. Um, They were armed men, machine guns everywhere. I was laying on the beach. My family was all around me. The men were right there interacting, uh, threatening, asking questions. And I was laying on my back, unaware of it, just 20 yards away, laying in a sand dune with one of my daughters on each shoulder. And my youngest son came to me and said, Dad, there's guys here with machine guns. And I started to get up, and I heard a voice in my... I don't know, wherever you hear these voices, I can't say it was my ears. And the voice said, if you will lay here for two minutes, no one will be hurt. But if you get up, you will start a chain of events that ends in tragedy. And so I lay there for two minutes, and I got up, and the situation was just what God said. We were spared. Our friends were not, but we were spared the part of the beach we were on. Now, when I received these words... Nothing changed about my circumstances in any of the times. But as long as I would obey the word that came to me and not deviate from it for any reason, I knew that my future was now being directed by God. We can build our lives on words from God. His people have always done this. Faith is absolutely powerful as long as it's based on a true, direct word from God to you. Now, I wish I could tell you the easy way to receive such words, but in my experience, it doesn't happen all that often. I mean, I get little nudges of guidance many days, but these big, life-altering words, sometimes they take decades for me to receive them. You know, in the case of, of God telling me to build a church in Manila, 
I didn't need any further guidance for almost 20 years because it took that long to build this church and make it a you know big, strong part of, of God's work in, in Metro Manila. But when the construction of our big worship center was completed and I was totally exhausted from the battle, the Lord spoke to me once again and he said, your time here is coming to an end. And I remember that day asking him to give me one year just to enjoy the fruits of my labor. And so he did, and I stayed a year, and then we moved on. When I hear from God, I'll just tell you personally, when I hear from God, it's sort of like, it's kind of like a circumstance where you've lost your keys and you've looked everywhere for them and you're all frantic and then you quit thinking about it and then suddenly you know exactly where they are. You have no doubt. There's no need to convince yourself or anyone else. It's a fact that you now remember. And that's how it comes to me most times when God speaks to me directly. It's not like thinking, and it's not like a human conversation. It comes to me like uh, a finalized thing. There's nothing, you know, like I hear some people when they do it, they talk about it. They go, I woke up this morning and I said, hey, God. And he said, hey. And I said, hey, God, you want to know what I think? And God said, what do you think? And see, I just think this is a, a silly person talking to themselves. I just can't imagine God going on like that with anybody. I can imagine that my own mind could go back and forth, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something that you do not initiate. It just comes to you. I mean, Paul, like Luke and the others, had pretty much concluded after 14 days of praying and begging God and, oh, Lord, help us, and 14 days, nothing's happening, and then they just said, we need to prepare to face the Lord. Our life is over, and that's where Paul was. He did not generate this hopeful word, you know. He had accepted the worst-case scenario, which I think is not a bad idea. Uh, prepare yourself for it. Get ready for it. And then you're, you know, you're more able to live, to live through it. Um, but in that circumstance, Paul gets a word from God. You know, everybody's below deck. They're hunkered down. They're preparing to face a certain death, and Paul gets in the circle, and he speaks to the group again. You know, he spoke to the group in the beginning of the voyage, and he says, you know, you shouldn't do this. Why the hubris? You're leading all of us to destruction. That's the word for destruction that he uses. Well, now he meets him again, and this time he, he has a different tone. He says, well, he, <laughs> he can't help but to give him a little I told you so. Verse 21 Men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. But now, I urge you, take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. I love how he ends it. He says, be encouraged, take heart. It's good for you that I believe God. Because the word was spoken to Paul, and Paul understands that his Faith alone is enough to seize upon God's promise and make it come true, and that everybody on this boat will live because of Paul's faith in God. 
Paul's been praying for the lives of these men, and God has heard that prayer and given Paul nothing but a word. He just gave him a promise. Nothing in the circumstances, any different. And Paul says, yeah, but I believe it, and that's what's going to change everything for all of you. He doesn't need any of them to believe it. They are saved because Paul believes it. But now... He wants to see each of them establish a faith connection of their own to the Father. He wants them to believe the Word of God. So Paul uses his faith. This is so important. Paul uses his faith as a leader to influence their faith. He plants a seed of hope inside of them with his faith. And this is a big faith because it involves a trial yet to come. Verse 26 He's going to say, the worst case is going to happen to us. We are going to run aground. This ship is going to be lost. We're all going to be in the sea. But we will come through this trial alive. Every single one of us will live. That's the promise. Not escape from this trial, but the power to overcome it and emerge victorious. Man, we need to ponder this the leader's confidence, and the effect of that confidence on those who follow them. This is true in in family, in ministry, in business. You know, I I mentioned the kidnap of our friend Tony Lehman and and Adan, who worked with him. And uh, as dark as that trial got, Tony's wife, Christine, her confidence and her boldness. They had three little girls who now had no provider, and Christine was in a very uh, dangerous situation in the Philippines, and she just took the courage to move to Australia. And so she goes down there with no job uh, and just launches out, but with so much confidence. She just kept her faith high and just went to war down there. And it's been now 13 years, and she has prospered there, and God has blessed her in her life in so many ways. And they have recovered as a family, and her girls are now a doctor and a civil engineer and a mechanical engineer, and they're just moving on. I mean, they're conquering people. But it's because of the way that their mother did not let them down She didn't allow her faith to break. She held on to it, and through that, she ignited theirs and kept them going. So Paul leaves all these men a promise. As he tries to set a fire to their faith, he says, Look, not a hair will fall from the head of any of you, so now eat. This is for your survival. I think that's pretty cool. He does something physical to prepare for the miracle that he is certain is going to come to all of them. So Paul prays, verse 35, then he grabs some food and he begins to eat it. Verse 36 says, then they were all encouraged and they also took food for themselves. You know, you can read the rest of the story in verses 37 through 44 and the shipwreck and the the drama of almost being killed by the soldiers and but, you know, in the end, it's just a great conclusion, but the battle has already been won when Paul wrapped his faith around God's promise and lashed it and decided he could float on that promise alone. His life began to influence everyone around him. He went through a physical trial, almost died in this circumstance. 
But at the end of the story, the beautiful ending, verse 44, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land as they crawled on to victory out of the surf that day. Well, I don't know what you're going through. Maybe nothing right now. Sorry, I can promise you you're going to have trials in the future. Just remember this. All you need is a word from God. Just pray till you get one. Uh, Stand on all the promises of Scripture and ask God to give you also a personal word so that you can tie your faith to all of that and hold on tight. Faith will last through the storm, and faith will take you through your physical trial. You know, sometimes God needs to empower us to rise up and overcome our trial, uh, our physical trial. And sometimes God will be with us as we face death and we die and we see his faith just his face just a few seconds later. But whatever it is, we need the Lord with us and faith ensures that. So don't let go of God's hand in the hard times. Don't be afraid of these trials. Trials are going to come. You have to become an overcomer and become stronger than the trial. Don't just, you know, let your faith stay at the little whiny baby level of, oh, God, take away my problems. Oh, in Jesus' name, take away my problems. You need a storm-fighting faith that looks at the gale in front of you and just says, I'm not going to give up. I'm going through this, or I'm going to die with glory, but I am not going to wimp out, and I'm not going to whimper down, and I'm not going to let my faith break. I am strong, and I believe in a powerful God. Paul had that kind of faith, and you can too, because that belongs to us. It's a gift. Faith is a gift from God. We can all have faith. We have a measure of it. We can exercise it and make it grow. Well, that's all we have time for today. Great story. Powerful lesson for all of us. If you want to say anything to me personally, you can just always write me, chuck at quinley.com. Talk to me personally. I'd love to interact with you. Expect God to use you. We'll see you next time on Thread.